Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Here today with two very special guests, reoccurring fan favorite Ali Hamed of CoVenture Capital and Andrew D'Souza, founder and CEO of ClearBank. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Excited to be here. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Awesome. Andrew, what is ClearBank and what problem did you guys set out to solve? Yeah, ClearBank is creating a new way for entrepreneurs to fund their growth. You know, I think both Myself, my co-founder, have been through the uh, the ups and downs of raising a ton of venture capital, having to deal with the process of doing that, and then the ongoing sort of board management, investor relations. And Michelle, my partner, has kind of bootstrapped every company and had to do, deal with the sort of uncertainty of not knowing, you know, how aggressive to be and, and how to be able to to access, you know, next month's funding and payroll uh, when you're bootstrapped. And so what we're trying to do is say, look, on one hand, one end of the spectrum, you've got equity, which is expensive takes a lot of time to raise, um, and it's really good for funding uncertainty. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got debt, which is, you know, also takes a lot of time to raise, can be pretty restrictive for a founder, sometimes comes with things like personal guarantees and covenants. And it's really designed for like, unlocking liquidity from assets and fixed assets, which fast growing companies don't have a lot of. So we're trying to create something in between where if you know a dollar in equals two to $4 out over six to 12 months, we're a better alternative than, than equity or debt to fund that growth. So that's what ClearBank is. We're trying to create a new asset class, new funding model for, for entrepreneurs. And my understanding is that you, you didn't start this way day one. Can you talk about how the business has evolved over time? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we started with this vision of helping entrepreneurs through financial services. We looked at, you know, the, the entire landscape of who considers themselves entrepreneurs, whether those are freelancers, self-employed, you know, gig economy folks. We did a partnership with Uber in the early days, tried to figure out if Uber drivers are more like entrepreneurs or more like part-time jobs. Found that, that most Uber drivers think of themselves as part-time jobs. Some of them think of themselves as entrepreneurs, but they're not really capital constrained, they're more time constrained in terms of how much more money they can make. We did a, we did a lot of work in the vacation rental space with Airbnb and Humbleway. We actually found a lot of folks that you know, are building sort of property management businesses on top of these vacation rental platforms. Still think that's a really interesting vertical and we funded a lot of those businesses, but also found that, you know, the data that exists in that ecosystem is a little bit more messy than we'd like. And, and it's not, you know, and, and a lot of those, it's hard to find those entrepreneurs. We know there's a lot of them out there, but it was hard to kind of unveil them all. And, you know, where we've evolved has been primarily e-commerce, you know, consumer brands, people that are building products and selling them to consumers we've evolved to really fund their customer acquisition, which is what a lot of them go out and raise money for. Part of the background is Michelle, my co-founder, is on the Canadian version of Shark Tank. And so we would see all of these pitchers that would come on saying, hey, I've invented a brand new you know, widget and I need $100,000 and I'm willing to give up 25% of my company to do that. And I need to spend that $100,000 on Facebook and Google ads. And we were just like, I don't know if I want to own 25% of this company forever. You're going to resent me when your company's worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe. And do I really want to sit on the board of this company? Do I really think there's an exit? You know, it's a family business. They're going to continue to, you know, they never want to sell it. But how do we fund your customer acquisition? We want to work with you. We want to help. How do we fund your growth without necessarily taking a piece of your business? And, and so that was part of what led to this model that's, that's really resonating. 
And Ali, you've been thinking a lot over the past few years about cost of capital, about alternative uh, financing models. You've, you've called out uh, in, in a positive way or encouraged VCs to, to be a bit more creative about different, different funding models. Trace a little bit your you know, ideological evolution as to some of these topics and then uh, leading up to when you, when you discovered and got involved with ClearBank. Yeah, no, you know, one of the things that we often tell people is we think it's insane that, well, so companies take longer to go public now, right? So they become like these half a billion dollar companies or multi-billion dollar companies while still staying private. And, you know, if these companies had gone public, if you look at them, they'd have much more sophisticated capital effect than they currently have. And, and if you look at the world today, you have these businesses becoming worth 10, 15, 20 billion dollars in enterprise value on the back of preferred equity and convertible notes. And so it's like, it's pretty obvious to us that we need to change the way that we're funding companies. And I don't think venture capital is going away. Like venture capital plays a, a tremendously useful, but you've got to think of other ways to fund these companies. And if you're, in, if you're an e-commerce business and you know that if you put a dollar on Facebook, you're going to generate $5 of, of revenue, but there's no way you should be using equity financing to do that. That's just stupid. You're basically selling part of your company for money that you know you're about to get right back. And even if you're paying kind of a more expensive yield on the debt, you're not really comparing it to other debt. It's really just a replacement of equity. And the same thing is true for like SaaS companies. Like if you're a SaaS company, you have your current revenue, but a really long payback period, why do you keep raising equity financing to dilute you over and over when you really probably can borrow against that recurring revenue where the churn's really your an, an analogy of a default rate? And so if we look at all these different models, you know, investors have been really, really uncreative in how to provide financing to these businesses. In the case of ClearBank, they can fund the really, really fast-growing startup. They can also fund sort of the business that does a few million dollars in revenue or even high hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue by giving them that ability to scale without wondering, hey, look, if I'm pursuing growth, maybe I'm going to risk my business and risk making payroll. So it's just sort of the broader problem of we have to get out of our heads of the only things that exist in the world are seed series and series B round and start thinking like, what is the right type of capital for this situation and be a little bit more flexible how we structure it. So it's the right solution, not just sort of the everything's a nail and we have a hammer. Yeah, I think just to jump on that point a little bit, you know, I would love for venture capital to sort of get back to the roots of funding technical risk, right? You know, I put a dollar in and I don't know whether I'm going to get zero out or a thousand dollars out over, you know, tomorrow or over 10 years, right? I think that is where, you know, funding things that move humanity forward, funding R&D, funding product development, um, and every company goes through a moment or several moments of its time where you are taking sort of you know, you're really funding uncertainty, right? You're, you're launching a new product, you're trying a new channel. And, and I think that's a perfect use of equity. But I would love, you know, if in five years, we're, we're you know, we get back together and we're, you know, people are looking back at the like 2018, 2019 timeline and being like, I can't believe that founders sold 50, you know, 80% of their business before an IPO or an exit mostly to fund Facebook and Google ads, right? Mostly, so you're basically giving your money away to Facebook and Google or giving your company away to Facebook and Google, which feels... And one of the problems that Andrew's speaking to is venture capitalists, in many ways, are just misaligned, right? And, and they only can invest equity. So, of course, a venture capitalist is going to go to an entrepreneur and say, hey, you know what? You don't want to take on debt capital because there's covenants, there's corporate guarantees, and there's this and there's that because they want to be able to keep employing equity financing. They want to be able to keep putting more business money into the business. And they, like, at a certain point, a reasonable payback period is actually good for the, the VC funds that are sort of billion dollars plus and are so focused on ownership. What Andrew and Michelle are doing is giving those entrepreneurs an alternative option. But Andrew, I love how you kind of described, holy cow, you're giving like 50 to 80% of your company to Google. It, it's just crazy. Why couldn't VCs do this now? 
so there's a couple things, right? I think one, they're like, their structures are set up for like long-term investments. Their LPs are not set up in that way. Now they could, you know, they could or couldn't restructure when they raise new funds. I think it's more about, we have a 50 person team, you know, half of which is, you know, engineering data science, right? We've built a lot of infrastructure and technology to be able to do the volume of deals that we do at the pay. You know, we funded 500 companies last year. We'll fund 1500 to 2000 companies this year you know, be like a VC firm where every associate's doing 10 deals a day. I mean, somebody could start that VC firm, um, but that's sort of what we've done, right? Is, is we've, we've sort of flipped the model on its head and said, look, we don't really care about, you know, the pattern recognition that VCs go through of like, where did you go to school? You know, who do you know? Where did the introduction come from? Do I like you as an entrepreneur? And, and do I, you know, how do, how do I feel about it? We, we really focus on the data, right? And it's just about like, Hey, I don't care if I would ever use your product or buy your product or if my, you know, kids would use it or like family members would use it. All I care about is do you have a product that customers are buying and do you have a channel that you're able to find more of those customers and whether or not I understand that market or I care about the TAM of the market and whether or not I'm going to get a 10x to return my fund on my one deal, that doesn't matter to us, right? We we're set up so that, you know, all of our companies, right? 99% of our companies need to be successful, not one in 10, which is sort of the VC model. So, you know, not that they couldn't do it. They just, they haven't done it for 50 years. Right. And do you, in the next five years, do you see VCs evolving to look more like clear, or offer clear bank functionality or will, will it be the interplay between you and, and other venture VC firms? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I would love it, right? I think it'd be great for entrepreneurs. Our, our part of our mission is just like, how do we make life better for entrepreneurs? How do we let them focus on building their business rather than raising capital and managing their boards? And, and so that'd be great. I don't think it's going to happen, but I think what we'll end up doing is probably partnering. We, you know, probably half of the companies that we fund are referrals from VCs. Either, you know, the really good VCs want to fund technical risk and they don't want to fund ad spend, right? The really good ones are like, hey, I actually want my money to be used in the highest leverage, highest risk place because it's expensive capital. And they want to fund the companies that are taking big technical bets that, you know, could, could really move the needle. And so they refer to us to all the companies that they see that are, you know, are not a good fit for their, for their model or maybe playing in a market that they don't know how big it is. Or even the companies they do fund, they say, look, I would love to have a non-dilutive co-investor or follow-on investor that is just adding more fuel to the fire without taking a bigger, you know, without taking a piece of the pie. And so there's a real symbiotic relationship uh, with us and, and the good VCs, right? There are, like Ali alluded to, there are VCs that are just like, you know, greedy and are like trying to dilute their, their founders and saying, oh, no, let us keep putting more money into this company to own more and more when it's, you know, really expensive and restrictive or, or, or painful capital to take. I'm kind of curious, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about what you're doing is you're, you're basically taking an asset class or sort of a body of companies that have been funded primarily via qualitative metrics, right? Like if you ask 80% of VCs who work at a seed fund to like, like build out like an Excel model, they'd probably look at you like you had four eyes. So, you know, you're basically taking a really quantitative approach to what's traditionally a really qualitative asset class, you know, sort of ecosystem of companies. One of the things I'd love for you to kind of talk to is like, what are some of the, like the filters without going too much into the secret sauce that you guys look at right off the bat, you know, if a company is a fit or not. And then if there's any nuggets that you guys have gotten where there's something that you used to think was okay, but now you're like, I'll never find a company like that again, or some of the lessons learned in that underwriting process has gone into your model. Sure. Yeah. So look, I think you couldn't have built a company like ours five years ago, right? There just wasn't, there wasn't a consistent enough data set. So now, like, especially e-commerce, direct-to-consumer brands, there are five to 10, 
e-commerce platforms that almost every brand uses, five to 10 payment processes every brand uses, five to 10 marketing channels that every brand uses. And we've built integrations into, you know, all or, you know, we'll have, we'll have all of those done. And so we have a real-time view. We have a, you know, down to the transaction level, right? You know, how much money did you spend on Facebook, you know, Instagram story ads in October of 2018? And how much revenue that did that process through Stripe? that same month, right? Like we can actually see that and build a, you know, pretty accurate cash flow and sort of return on revenue history of these companies. And we can look at that in real time. So we can actually say like, you know, how is that doing? How's that trending over time? And, you know, so what we really try and figure out is how much money should these companies be deploying? How scalable is their model? And what is the response to the input of you know, additional capital. What is, you know, they spend that incremental additional dollar, how much incremental revenue does that actually drive? And we monitor that on a daily basis. The other nice thing is because we're plugged in and we're monitoring this on a daily basis, we can actually go and do, you know, like we can do a second round, a follow-on round a week or two later, right? We can literally, you know, imagine if you could have that level of granularity in your fundraising process because it's instant and there's no friction. As your company scales and grows, we can give you, better terms, better pricing, more capital as you need it. So you don't, like, you don't need to go raise 18 months you know, today of runway today. You can raise for next month and we'll, then we'll fund you again next month if you're, if you're doing well. And if you're not, then like, you know, we'll, just, we'll just let it trail off or you can pay us back. You know, that's one of the nice things about being a you know, technology-driven investor. Really? And can you say more about why it couldn't have been done five years from now, or sorry, five years ago and why... It's not being done five years from now, but sort of the why now moment. Ali mentioned earlier a little bit about you know companies staying private later and how they have a less sophisticated capital stack. Ali, I'm actually curious if you can expound on that, why it's a less sophisticated capital stack, and then perhaps we can get into other reasons it's why now and why not then or why not in the future. I guess I'll just to, to go really quickly. You know, if, you're, if you're a company that is a billion dollars in value and you're trading on a public market, you probably have a bank line from JP Morgan that's at like L plus five or L plus six, right? And you might have some assets on your balance sheet and you probably got in a mortgage or you probably refinanced some of the assets or you've probably explored buying your office building instead of renting your office building. Like you just become like an efficiently capitalized business. When you're like a high growth startup, you're like, yeah, I've done six financings in the entire universe of this thing. I've like never talked to a banker in my life and every single dollar I've ever spent in the world has been equity. And, or, and if it wasn't equity, it was convertible to debt. So it's just like a different, like order of magnitude difference in terms of how efficient you're using your capital if you're a company that's truly figured out how to access capital markets or not. And you don't, it's not even about being creative or not. It's just about like, oh my God, like you're a billion dollar company, you don't have a corporate loan. Like, what the hell? So, you know, I don't think it's much more uh, complicated than that. I'm going to let Andrew take the, you know, the why now. You know, it's kind of curious. I know, Andrew, you talked a little bit about, well, now there's sort of these mature distribution platforms, et cetera. I know that, to me, I feel like we're going through sort of this, like, B2C renaissance. Every time I'm taking a New York subway, I feel like, oh, my God, I should start Subway Capital and just try to fund all the companies I see Subway ads for because they must be doing really well. But, like, I'm curious what your why now answer is. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the fact that if you ever thought about building a brand, even five or ten years ago, you needed to do these massive media buys you needed to go and get into, you know, uh, get a wholesale order at a large retailer. It was capital intensive even to get it off the ground, and it was very hard to measure, right? Shark Tank is actually a great example, right? If you think about the pitches on Shark Tank in season one and two, like the first five seasons were like, 
hey, you know, I need your help getting into retail. I need your help getting onto QVC, whatever. I need your help getting large purchase orders uh, and getting distribution. Now it's all direct to consumer, right? It's like, I need your help on digital marketing. I need your help on partnerships, brand sourcing. And so, and I think this is part of the reason why VCs have, have started to gravitate to these, you know, direct to consumer brands, digitally native vertical brands is they're capturing so much more of the margin because they don't have to necessarily go through retailers, right? And they actually are, you know, they're, they're totally vertically integrated. So they own the supplier, they own the customer relationship. They, you know, there's a story at least around lifetime value of that customer. And so from a margin perspective, VCs are looking at these as saying, look, high growth, high margin businesses, let's just put the same product that we've, we've funded software businesses with, where in reality, you know, they're, they're actually built very different. And, and like Ali was, was saying, you know, deserve better or alternative forms of capital for different parts of their P&L. And so I think it's, you know, if I think about the why now, it's really because we are now at scale where you can build a large company with, you know, stitching together online platforms, online customer acquisition, online payment processing with a kind of robust system of record data that we can use to, you know, underwrite and service. Andrew, one of the things that I think is fascinating is you have so much data about what works and what doesn't work for e-commerce companies. If you were talking to an entrepreneur who was thinking about starting an e-commerce company and they were like, well, I'm thinking about advertising on Facebook, I might do it on Instagram, I might do fun on Pinterest, like, you got all the data. Like, what, what would you tell them? Like, if you were starting an e-commerce business from scratch, what social media or distribution channels have you found to be most successful? Yeah, and that's one of the things we're, we're working a lot with our entrepreneurs and, and all, you know, the ad platform partners that we're, uh, we work with is actually helping them figure out, you know, what's the right media mix, right? How much of that is Twitter for like top of funnel? How much of that is Pinterest for direct response? How much of that is Instagram for, you know, a little bit of brand awareness, a little bit of, of direct response? How much of that is Google for direct response? So like there's actually an efficient media mix per category, per like, you know, average ticket size, there's a there's an efficient media mix for and 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 for size right I mean a lot of brands can get to 10 million in sales on Facebook and Instagram alone and that's actually what we see a lot of companies do is like you get started and then you start to realize your Facebook ads are getting less efficient because you're starting to saturate your audience and you start to figure out okay well where else can I go find pockets of audience I can advertise to more efficiently and we sit in a really interesting place because we get to work with all these high growth companies and we're seeing people do interesting things like out of home, TV, podcasts, you know, Quora, Reddit, Twitter. We don't have the answer of the playbook right now, but that's one of the things we're focused on this year is really understanding like what works, right? What's the playbook? And this is where we want to be more than a, you know, just a, you know, dumb money, right? We actually want to be able to help our companies really be strategic around where they spend our money, right? We, we you know, we're very incentivized for it to get for them to get the biggest turn and the you know the most efficiency out of that capital. And so yeah, that's a that's a big focus for us. And, and one of the things that, you know, Eric and I spend a lot of our time on is trying to figure out like when we're looking at a consumer business and you see this sort of crazy growth and all of it's obviously organic and it's all word of mouth and everything's going awesome, you know, our fear is being fooled by a false positive, right? Where all of a sudden there's a crazy amount of growth. You kind of alluded to it where a lot of companies can get to ten million dollars in revenue and then suddenly they stall. Are there any like signals where you're like, you know what, like this looks like it's growing really fast, but either it's a fad, it's a false positive. We think it's growing really fast today, but I don't think it's going to grow really fast tomorrow. Like, what are some of the things that when you see like in your your like spidey sense turns on because you've seen it a few times where you think it's going to plateau soon? What are sort of those early indicators that Eric and I should selfishly look for whenever we're thinking about doing the equity of a business? 
Yeah, look, I mean, I think we try and be as objective as possible, right? I think this is where a lot of VCs can run into problems is like, hey, this seems like a fad business. I would never, you know, I would never stay in somebody's, somebody else's home. So like Airbnb seems like a dumb idea, right? Like, I, mean, I remember I met Travis when he was starting Uber and I was like, you know, this seems like a problem just for San Francisco where it's impossible to get a cab, but like, why would Uber ever work in New York, right? Like you, you apply your own personal bias to a product both like in terms of upside and downside, right? You're like, hey, I love Peloton. I'm, of course, I'm going to pay $5,000 for a bike. And like, you don't realize that there's a very small segment of the market that would do that. I think we, we try and stay as objective as possible. We look at the data around, you know, how saturated are the audiences, right? What's the relevance square on the ads? Like, are you actually, like we actually look at what are the objective metrics that are predictive of, you know, a business starting to tap out on a channel. Again, like we're not perfect at it, but I think we're better than most. And we, we can try and get ahead of when we think a company is starting to saturate or, or slow down. And either, you know, best case scenario is we introduce them to a new channel that is net new customers, right? And that's what we're really you know, striving to do. And if that's not possible, if they've saturated all the channels, then we basically going to get, get ahead of it and say, hey, look, you know, I know you want to double your budget next month, but we don't think you're going to get the efficiency out of it. So here's what we recommend. So, so we've talked a lot about sort of the companies that you're funding. But I'd love to learn, like, sort of, or talk through your business, right? So you guys are building this origination engine, this underwriting engine, this capital markets engine. I mean, building a lending company is really complicated because basically you spend all of your time trying to get people to talk to you. And as soon as they talk to you, you're basically judging them. So it's weird. How have you evolved even your team? Like, what does your team look like? You mentioned 50 people. How many people are focused on the underwriting? How many people are focused on the service team? You know, how many people are focused on the capital? Like, how do you think about that? And then after that, what are the hires that you guys have made that after you made those hires, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe we ever existed without them. Yeah. So one of the first is a general counsel who helped us navigate. So we're, you know, we're not a lender. We're actually building something very different than a loan or a debt product. It's a commercial contract. It's almost like a partnership contract, right? It's a rev share. It's a cap rev share that we structure. So you know, we will fund a company, you know, for example, for every $100,000 we'd give them to spend on online marketing, we would take back a fixed portion of revenue that might be 1%, that might be 5% of revenue until we get 106 back, right? And so that happens over six to eight months, typically. That's a typical structure. But, you know, if a business accelerates, that, happen, that, that money may come back in four to six months or four to five months. If a business slows down, that may happen over, you know, 10 to 12 months. So we're in it as a partner, right? It's the same way that you would structure a, you know, joint, you know, like a revenue share partner. The only difference is once you pay us back, you know, if you don't want more capital, you just pay us back. And then, you know, we shake hands and like, wish you good luck. There's no sort of ongoing relationship beyond that, you know. 80% of our companies want to continue to grow and they want to continue to work with us. And it's, it's very easy. So we're sort of betting our business on being able to find these companies early and grow with them, you know, until there's, they're doing hundreds of millions of dollars. And our, our, you know, our product scales all the way from, you know, $10,000 to get off the ground to 10 million plus to, to really, you know, continue to scale. In terms of how we built the team to support that, you know, like I said, about half the team is focused on technology, you know, integrations, data science, like really building a better and better model to serve the customers and making that customer experience as you know, seamless and efficient as possible. The other half of the team is sort of on the finding those customers and talking to them, right? Outbound prospecting, whether that's through channels like VCs, ad agencies send us a lot of referrals, some of the payment platforms and the ad platforms we work with their sales team to send us, send us businesses. Or we, go, we reach out directly, right? And we use a bunch of different data sources to find the companies that we like that are growing at a good, good clip and reach out to them proactively. You know, unlike I think what you'll find with a lending company that is spending a lot of money on ads and marketing 
and then they get a bunch of applications and they say no to 90% of them, we actually try and be proactive to kind of hunt the companies we want to work with. And then we end up probably saying yes to half of them once we kind of get them through the, the process. And we're, we're trying to sort of use data and some of the systems to go and hunt those companies and get them into the portfolio. And so, you know, we, we bring a lot of like, you know, my background, I, I had built a SaaS company um, with a high velocity sort of sales team, brought in a, a VP of sales that, that had done sort of inside sales effectively in the past. And then, a, you know, marketing lead as, as well who, who had that. And then we've got, a, you know, a phenomenal sort of data science analytics team that is constantly sort of pushing the envelope in terms of where we can get new signal, where we can get new data to augment our underwriting and decision making. Yeah. How should LPs be thinking about sort of differences between ClearBank and VC? And how does this change the LP ecosystem and, and you know, what kind of return for calls, et cetera, to be thinking about? Yeah. I mean, I think what we provide is probably, you know, much more diversified and liquid product, right? So we pay a monthly preferred return. We, you know, we have right now two-year funds. We have a lot of flexibility. We can do one-year funds. We can do three or five-year funds. So we have a lot of flexibility in the structure that we can provide. We have multiple funds outstanding and, and continue to raise them as we fill them up. We end up providing, you know, equity-like returns for what we think is fixed income-like downside protection because we're, you know, cash flow based and we're getting getting paid back daily. So we will likely, you know, if you're a if you're a pension fund or a large LP, we probably are outperforming your aggregate VC portfolio, but we're probably not outperforming your, you know, top 10% in terms of of equity, you know, of, of the returns. To, but we offer, you know, much more sort of principal protection and downside protection and and certainty of funding and liquidity than what you get in a long VC or private equity fund. Andrew, are there any other second order effects that could emerge from these alternative venture models, uh, alternative venture models approaching? It is interesting. Where this is sort of coming at the time where there's a lot of, I don't want to say animosity, but maybe it is animosity towards towards venture right now. There's this New York Times article. There was, uh, you know, Sahil from Gumroad wrote this piece. I mean, there's sort of a lot of, you know, anti-VC sentiment right now or a call for alternative models. What, what other sort of uh, second order effects could you see emerging from ClearBank and, and more of these or yeah, look, I think there's certainly sort of a movement happening, right? I think entrepreneurs are sort of waking up and realizing that like, hey, this isn't actually the, the panacea that, that we were sort of promised. I think what's, you know, there have been a bunch of different factors that led to this. Part of it is, you know, increased regulation on public companies, scrutiny on public companies led to companies staying private longer. A lot more money has flowed into private, into venture capital and private equity from public markets. And so there's a lot more money chasing entrepreneurs and businesses. A lot more companies are starting to look like tech companies or, or at least like high growth, high margin businesses. And so you're starting to see, you know, a lot of venture capital, a lot of dollars flowing into venture capital is starting to behave weirdly, right? And so they're, they're chasing deals, they're ratcheting up prices, they're setting, you know, crazy expectations. Chamath is one of our investors, has talked a lot about this sort of Ponzi scheme in VC where everybody's just focused on raising the next fund to collect more fees to, you know, so they're just focused, they're telling the companies to grow faster and mark up their investment faster so they can do that. So there's, there's some perverse incentives, I think, in VC. And I think as those become more transparent to the entrepreneur, there's getting to be a bit of a backlash. And then I think there's this realization, this movement of entrepreneurs that, who want to own and control, like people want to become entrepreneurs because they want to work for themselves. They don't want to work for a VC who works for a series of LPs. They want to control their own destiny. They want to work for themselves. And I think, I think a lot of entrepreneurs sort of resent the, the fact that they're, you know, they now 
are really working for their board and, and reporting to, to a ser- series of investors. And that's not really what they got into it for. Yeah, look, I think it's going to be, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think the fact that ClearBank exists and we're seeing, you know, the demand that we are is probably a kind of a relief valve for a lot of entrepreneurs who, are, who have kind of come to this realization that, you know, VC isn't necessarily all that it, that it, it was promised in every case. And venture capital just branded itself really well, right? Like, yeah, these super, you know, smart sounding people who put together like really fancy websites and brands and basically said, oh, like if you raise money from X, Y, and Z firm, you're destined for success because they had a thing called Signal and everyone else is going to want to fund you. And then they take like, these really cool, like we just sort of glamorize the whole asset. And it's, I mean, it's phenomenal. It's like so fascinating that venture capital figured a way to turn their capital into not a commodity. But it was sort of this false promise in, in many ways because they're marketing, like they're selling the, the money at people and they'd love for people to take it at a cheap price. So I think, and you know what you're saying in terms of sort of this disenchantment resonates or it's caused people to take in a lot of capital that they probably wouldn't take in if it wasn't for the social validation it provided. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting. I mean, if you think about what you were talking about, companies not going public, imagine a public company, you know, being like, hey, you should give me shares in General Motors at a lower rate than the rest of the public because I'm such a great investor. I mean, that's sort of, you know, maybe that happens here and there, but like, that's not really the way that it happens in public markets, right? You have, you have a lot more market pricing and the capital is a commodity. And, you know, I think you're right. DC's sort of said they've intuited a causation rather than a correlation, you know, or a reverse, you know, they're sort of saying, hey, I, I invested in Uber, so Uber must be great because of me rather than, hey, I, I managed to get into Uber and Uber is great. And so you should let me kind of invest in your company. If you talk to, you know, most seasoned entrepreneurs, I think the do no harm, like don't screw up my company is sort of the, you're in the top, you know, 80, 80th percentile of, of most VCs. And so I found like a lot of the promise that you get from VCs is, is of kind of additional value add doesn't necessarily materialize. And, and when it does, it's probably not worth, you can probably get it from independent advisors and, and, and other people that you can surround yourself with uh, probably doesn't warrant the cost, you know, time, headache, and, and actual financial cost of that equity. Yeah. So I mean, lo- looking out, and maybe Ali, we can start with you, you know, five years out, 10 years out, what is the future of how, you know, startups are getting funded by who and in what stages? What does VC look like? What percentage of that pie is, is VC? What are your predictions for, for what will happen? And if you could wave a wand and change anything, what, what would you want to happen? So I'm pretty convinced that you'll end up seeing a continued bifurcation of venture capital firms. There's going to be the venture capital funds that want to just stay in venture capital, like the benchmarks of the world, the union squares of the venture of the world. They say, you know what, we like to have a certain size of fund. We really like investing at the stage. We're going to keep doing it and stick to our sort of knitting. There's going to be the second type of VC fund that says, you know what, uh, we're going to become massive. And it'll be, and I've said this before, and I don't really know anything that no one else knows. But like, I'm convinced that Andreessen Horowitz is going to basically say, hey, we have this massive fund. We have this massive brand. We're setting up like this crypto fund and we're a blockchain fund. We're setting up, you know, sort of different silos of our business. And essentially what they're doing is creating PMs where they have portfolio managers called general partners who run different sort of verticals. And one day they're going to say, oh, like, we should probably try to buy ClearBank. And I don't know if ClearBank will ever sell to them or not, but ClearBank will have to like seriously consider it. And Andreessen Horowitz will have to consider buying ClearBank because all of a sudden they're going to try to keep growing their assets and they're not going to be able to deploy as much as they want to deploy because ClearBank's now limiting the amount of equity these businesses need to take in because now they have debt to augment their growth. So, you know, I do think they're actually, we're actually going to see this, this really odd sort of M&A happening in the venture community, especially with these massive funds 
where they become multi-asset managers. I think that's kind of inevitable. And when you start to see that happen, all of a sudden, as soon as Andreessen Horowitz starts trying to figure out ways to use debt financing to fund growth, or starts saying, hey, we're going to do token finance instead, that's going to create specialized niche type funds. And they're going to say, hey, it's going to be like the circle up to the world to focus on CPG and just get CPG right. And they're going to fund the equity of these businesses and the debt of these businesses, et cetera. You're going to have the clear banks and they're going to own the e-commerce world. And they're going to, you know, if I had a guess, and I don't, again, it's not that Andrew and I have talked about it. I'm convinced Andrew's going to come out with like 10 other products that are all really smart. And he's going to learn 19 other things. And by the way, like, Maybe he'll, he builds an ad agency that they contract with because they're going to have so much first-party data that no one else has on how to grow your business. So I think that it's, you know, people are going to start to realize that companies all are built differently and having one VC fund that's structurally built to back SaaS companies and using the same fund also back, back e-commerce companies and CPG businesses or businesses that may never actually get to a billion dollars of enterprise value because it's a little bit more niche. You can't do that out of one fund. And so I just think we're going to see all kinds of different products being used. Some of those products will come from the sort of bulge bracket asset managers that'll end up, that, that today we call VC funds, but tomorrow we'll just call it asset managers. And some of them will come from specialized firms as well. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't plan on selling to, to Andreessen, but always happy to, happy to chat with, with those guys. But, you know, I think, I think it's interesting. I, I, said, I, I said they'll try to, I said they'll try to buy if I didn't say that you'll sell to them. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's interesting. I mean, look, my perfect utopian future is all of the money that's in venture capital goes to solving truly, truly hard problems, right? I think that would be phenomenal. If, if it's instead of, you know, MBAs running spreadsheets, trying to figure out tax LTV, they're trying to figure out, they're funding 10 companies that are trying to cure cancer, develop flying cars, extend life, you know, get us to the moon, solve the energy crisis, right? I think those are the like outsized bets that equity is uniquely designed to fund. And so like my utopian vision is like we actually help sort of reorient all of this venture capital and all this talent that sits in the space and all this capital to really solving the hard problems that equity is is uniquely poised to solve and then we sort of help the rest of the entrepreneurs right like you know SoftBank is funding a hundred billion dollars but in hundred million dollar increments we want to we want to do the same but funded in ten thousand or hundred thousand dollar increments so you know several orders of magnitude more entrepreneurs touch globally and I think a model like, like us is, is well suited for most of those. And then the Elon Musks and the people that are really trying to swing, swing for the fences around moving humanity forward, they should get the concentration of venture capital, right? We should have 10 times as many of those. I think that would be a, a phenomenal future. Yeah. Ali, can you talk a, a couple minutes about the future of co-venture? Where, where do you guys sit five, 10 years out? Is it sort of the Andreessen model, but just a few years behind because they have a head start? So we're really good at figuring out what we want to do today. We're not so good at figuring out what we want to do five years from now. And then like, we sort of have this dream of like what, like one day looks like, you know, I think today we like to intake what, what Andrew said, equity investments in businesses where there's real uncertainty, where they're going to take the capital and they're going to do something with the capital today. But like tomorrow they might do something completely different with the capital, right? Like if I give someone debt financing, you know, I kind of know what they're going to do with it. Right. I'm like, all right, you're going to make, you know, loans to e-commerce companies and you're only going to use capital for that. Great. If I fund somebody with equity capital, they can do whatever the hell they want with it. And so it's nice that there's, we have this ability to back the equity of businesses out of that fund. That being said, you know, we think that co-ventures in this are interesting firm to partner with, although it's massively biased, because not only can we provide the equity financing, but once we're your partner there, we can provide you all these different types of facilities, whether it's a revolver, a forward flow agreement, an off-balance sheet fund, you know, we can take your assets off the balance sheet and do interesting stuff with it. And I think that 
we're a firm that's really become, that's really focused on comparative advantages, where we like to think that we're good at credit, you know, but there's other people who are good at credit. We definitely know we know more about venture than all other friends in credit. We like to think that we're good at venture, you know, and I think you're good at venture, right? So, but there's a, there's a lot of people who are good at venture. We're definitely better at credit than all of our, our other venture friends. That's just our thing. And so if we can continue to build a firm where we're winning on comparative advantages by knowing something different, not just the same. Like if, if I say something about a credit deal, I probably sound somewhat insightful compared to all my other venture friends, but compared to another person who's been building specialty lenders for their whole life and does credit, like I'm just saying the same thing everyone else in, you know, specialty finance and everyone else does. So I think that's what we ultimately want to do is say, what do our companies need? How do we almost build like this rainforest of financial products for those companies? And whereas, and actually maybe like Andrew will build a business that will like collaborate with in a million different ways and co-invest with in a million different ways. You know, I, I'd like to think that I'm one of the VC firms that sends deals to the bank because if I'm in the equity of a business and I'm not set up to quantitatively underwrite the growth of an e-commerce business, basically by bringing Andrew in, I'm just levering up my investment. And what's better as, an, as a venture investor than levering up your investment with non-recourse capital? I mean, it's, it's, of course I'd do that. So you know, we want to kind of build that rainforest of financial solutions for startups as they grow. Last question for you, Ali. Of course, the other innovation in, uh, you know, alternative finance, what people think about the last couple of years has been ICOs. You know, people talk about crowdfunding for a long time. Ali, one, what's your quick take on, on crowdfunding or, or ICOs? And, and two, is there any other alternative finance models that don't yet exist that you think should exist that startups should be, uh, you know, should be using or, or should use in the future? It's funny. In 2017, all ICOs were awesome. In 2018, all ICOs are horrible. And, you know, it looks like everything. It's sort of in between. You know, the two reasons that you should issue a token is, one, if you believe that you're going to issue a security token. And issuing a security token is a really good idea because you feel like you have a body of investors who would pay a premium to the price of preferred equity because they value the liquidity more than they value the governance and liquidation preferences of preferred. If you have an investor base that would you know, buy into your equity at a higher price if they had some sort of transfer rights and liquidity mechanism. And they were optimistic that with those transfer rights, there'd be another buyer sometime in the future and gave them optionality. Like you should definitely sell your equity that way because you're basically selling less equity with less governance at a higher price. Okay, so that's one reason. And if you're a buyer of that equity and you feel like, hey, that security interest still gets you the future cash flow of the business, but you value your liquidity premium because you're not really sure about what things going to do and will companies ever go public again and everything else. Like, yeah, maybe that's a rational reason to buy that type of token. In terms of like an, a utility token, you know, I think the reason that you issue them, and not all companies should, but if you're building a project and your project relies on many, many different people all sort of contributing to it, and you want some way to incentivize them to contribute to it, you give them a token, and then you charge all future people who use the project later some tokens to use it so the people who help build it capture the rent. And instead of all the equity value going to the creator of the original asset, you're taking those economics and then passing them off to all the people who contributed to that open source project. Those are like the two ideas of token issuances. Both of those ideas are still here. I don't really know why people think they're all bad now. Just like I don't really know why everyone thought they were all good in 2017. Like, I still like think crypto is going to take off. And I'm buying more now than I was buying in 2018 when it was super overvalued. And, you know, the meetings I'm having now are actually with a lot of people who are like, oh, wow, this like token thing, maybe I'll buy in again. So the sentiment has really changed even in the last 30 days than it was five months ago when everyone was super bearish on it. In terms of the last thing that I think is interesting, you know, I try to like leave each, each time we talk with like one new idea. I am really interested in these soft like IP type assets. 
And so one of the things that I'm looking a lot at right now is, you know, right now it's illegal to try to sort of take economic gain by building Spotify playlists. But I do believe that Spotify playlists are the new radio stations and radio stations have historically been profitable, right? There's like real businesses that have been built on top of that. And so one of the things that I'd love to one day do is build a roll-up of the top Spotify playlist because that's how people discover music and then one day sell that roll-up to a talent agency who would then want to say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Artist, I will sign you. And if I sign you, you will then be on, uh, we, we will then be able to distribute you across all these different Spotify playlists who have all these different followers. And the fact that we signed you is what's going to make you successful. So that's like the next asset that I'm kind of interested in. Awesome. I want you to do yeah, Guys, I got to run, but uh, I appreciate awesome. it all the time. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Ali. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Love it. You know, I, I, I agree with Ali. Ali's, I'm very bullish on crypto for those specific use cases, right? I think the transparency and liquidity for securities is incredibly valuable across sort of, you know, capital markets broadly, right? I think, I think that's, there's been a huge lack of transparency. It's what led to the financial crisis, being able to actually have full transparency and third-party liquidity, I think, is, allows you to sort of price find for asset prices much more efficiently. So big believer in that. On the utility or consumptive token side, I think there are a few super interesting use cases, but most of what, we've, what I've seen are sort of trying to force something into a regula- from a regulatory perspective, fit into a box. And so, look, I think for entrepreneurs to be able to have different avenues to raise capital and, and to incentivize different stakeholders is always a positive thing. I love, you know, I've always been a fan of crowdfunding. The idea that you can pre-sell a product without having to take the huge amount of, you know, inventory risk is incredibly valuable. The question around, you know, how much of a benefit, increased benefit should those early backers get for that product really depends on the product and how much risk they're really taking. If it's a product with a high, you know, high level of certainty that it will get produced and delivered, then there's probably not that much risk they're taking. And they, you know, if they get a discount for for backing it early, it's probably worthwhile. If there's a, you know, significant R&D type effort and they're pre-buying your product, which is, which is sort of what the consumptive token is supposed to represent, then I think they, they, you know, should they do deserve more equity-like returns because they're taking equity-like risk? But uh, no, I think that's I think that's super interesting. The Spotify playlist is a super, is, a, is an interesting one too. I haven't I haven't really thought about that. I do think you know, I think there's something interesting around Amazon brands and you know an equivalent you know being able to build rankings within Amazon or Alexa being top of you know when people search for toothpaste or whatever I think is is valuable and we're seeing sort of. People look at roll-ups for those those DDC brands and those those marketplace-based brands, which is another sort of equivalent to building on top of an existing platform and creating economic value on it. I'll ask you the same question I asked Ali. You know, looking out five, 10 years, what sort of new products did you see yourself releasing and, and what's the big vision for, for Clearbank in terms of what does it look like? Yeah, so look, you know, our mission is to help help entrepreneurs be successful, use financial services to do it, but but help them achieve their dreams without without the headaches of like, thinking about their financing. What that means in, in practice is, you know, right now we're funding customer acquisition, but if you think about the P&L of a business, you have a number of repeatable, directly tied to revenue line items, right? And that may be, you know, for an e-commerce business, that, that could be customer acquisition, shipping, inventory, you know, and then you have some things that are variable like product development or warehousing or, you know, some, some fixed costs. You know, for a SaaS company, that could be payroll, right? They could be marketing and payroll and sales commissions that are all sort of variable and tied to revenue that right now equity is plugging the hole to say, if you don't want to wait and grow slowly based on cash flows, we will help you 
accelerate that growth today. ClearBank wants to step in and say, look, for all of those repeatable things where you have a pretty good sense around what a dollar in equals, you know, how many dollars out, or at least the parameters around, you know, the high and low bounds of it, for every line item, we want to be able to fund. And so we're building out products to be able to fund, you know, everything from inventory to shipping to, you know, eventually we'll, we'll fund payroll and other things. But we're focusing on customer acquisition because that seems to be the biggest need and the biggest, biggest opportunity right now. The other big focus for us is internationalization. You know, right now we're focused primarily in North America, you know, where there's still a huge problem in access to capital for, for entrepreneurs. But as you think about, you know, international markets, there's even more of a challenge, right? UK and Europe, there's less of a developed venture ecosystem. Banks are much more conservative. Places like India, you know, there's personal guarantees associated with equity investments. So you put your house on the line, even if you take venture capital, which is totally absurd and, and unfair to the entrepreneur. So we think there's a huge, exciting opportunity in sort of global, uh, the global market where we can help entrepreneurs globally. And the fact that we don't need to go and meet you or know where you went to school or get a background reference on you. And we can just look at the, the metrics of your business allow us to do that uniquely. And so that's what we're, what we're you know, particularly excited about. Diversity is important. We, we value diversity and thought in, in the types of people we hire in the company, but like we didn't have a diversity mandate when we built the company. But what's happened, because we've removed this bias, because you don't need a warm introduction to us to work with us, because you don't, we don't care about where you went to school, we don't meet our, you know, most of our entrepreneurs face-to-face, or at least not until after we've funded them, we've taken a lot of the bias out of the decision-making. And so we funded, I think, like eight times more women than the average VC. You know, we funded people in like, you know, middle America, you know, Idaho and Utah, and Florida, where they're in Baltimore, where there's not like a developed venture capital ecosystem and who otherwise, you know, would have had to, you know, take a second mortgage on their home or ask friends and family for, for money. So I think that's one of the exciting things is there's a huge amount of untapped entrepreneurial talent and potential that hasn't even you know, been able to dream or, or take the risk or have the ambition that they could if they had access to a product like ours. And, you know, I think, you know, I'm, again, hopeful that products like, like ours that are as much as possible taking a lot of that, that subjective bias out of the decision making help solve a lot of the, you know, you know, gender, race, economic class, diversity challenges that I think we've seen in the venture capital ecosystem. And, you know, it's not, not by any sort of proactive mandate, but it's, it's just a byproduct of, of looking at, at data and, and objectivity rather than the subjectivity. Totally. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. This has been a great episode. Yeah, no, this is awesome. This is a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 